This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfiore.com, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Progressive, The Young Turks, Media Matters, and Blacking It Up. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode contains bad news for anyone who believes in voting, constitutions, or representative government. Hi there, hoodies and hoodettes. Shoot 'em up, Charlie here. By now, you know that I get to help vigilante types kill unarmed people. And the best part is, it's perfectly legal. Thanks to my friends at the NRA and ALEC who write the laws and then feed them to politicians all over the country, if you feel threatened by a punk packing dangerous Skittles, shoot, shoot, shoot! But Alec and I, we're not just one-shot wonders. We're funded by millions and millions of corporate dollars working to undermine things like healthcare reform. In other words, I help corporations shoot you and then deny you coverage for a pre-existing condition. It's all about getting the laws we write into state houses everywhere through our complicit lawmakers. Which would sound like a crazy conspiracy if it weren't true. We write so many laws and distribute them through our member politicians, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. From blocking healthcare reform, to gutting environmental laws, to busting unions and pushing private prisons, it's a right-wing rapid-fire turkey shoot. But laws don't kill people. Laws introduced by pliable politicians backed by a shadowy organization funded by huge corporations kill people. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation says it is going to stop funding the conservative group known as ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Coalition. It's a group that promotes conservative legislation at the state level. A spokesman for the Gates Foundation telling Roll Call newspaper this week that it does not plan to make any future grants to ALEC. The Coca-Cola Corporation and Pepsi both had corporate memberships with ALEC, and both of those companies have announced plans to drop those memberships. So has Kraft Foods, telling Politico last week that it will not renew its membership in ALEC. Same with Intuit, the, co- the software company behind Quicken and TurboTax. And same with McDonald's. McDonald's telling Mother Jones that that company has also decided not to renew its ALEC membership this year. In other words, tough times are falling on the folks at ALEC, as the group's typically quiet efforts to push conservative legislation in the states have been getting a lot more attention lately. From the stand-your-ground gun laws, like the controversial Florida measure at the center of the Trayvon Martin case right now, which Alec worked with the NRA to export to other state legislatures, to new make-it-harder-to-vote laws, which an Alec task force adopted in 2009, to draconian anti-immigration measures, a la Arizona's Papers, Please law, which closely resembles a model bill drafted at an Alec conference. The stuff Alec does, the legislation Alec peddles and proliferates among the states, is increasingly being regarded as toxic. It's a group that has counted in the past on flying under the radar, on nobody knowing what they're doing. And now that they are no longer under the radar, now that people are paying attention to who they are and what they do, Alec, frankly, is becoming political poison. And so now is a really bad time to be known as a politician who keeps introducing legislation that's kind of sort of written by Alec. 
which is to say it's a really bad time to be New Jersey's Republican Governor Chris Christie. The New Jersey Star-Ledger having just found a pattern of similarities between Alec's proposals and several measures championed by the Christie administration. Now you might think being outed as the guy who keeps introducing Alec legislation would be the worst current political problem for New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, but it turns out Governor Christie is having a really bad political time right now in more ways than one. Being the Alec guy at precisely the moment when public opinion is turning against Alec, when even big companies who don't mind being, didn't mind being part of it before are, are running away from Alec in a full-on sprint. At the same time that is happening, Governor Christie is also now having to deal with a $1.5 billion corporate welfare record, which is getting more and more attention at a time he really wants to seem like a fiscal conservative. Having not even served a full term as New Jersey governor yet, Chris Christie is on the hook for having passed out a record amount of state money to corporations. $1.5 billion. And then there's today's bombshell in the New York Times. News that the reasons Chris Christie gave at the time for unilaterally killing the biggest public works project in the country might not have been real reasons. And this is based on findings from a Government Accountability Office report, a bipartisan, nonpartisan report that is set to be released this week. The Times is reporting today that Governor Christie exaggerated when he said that unforeseen costs to his state were forcing him to cancel a new train tunnel between New Jersey and New York. York. The Times finding that Mr. Christie also misstated New Jersey's share of the project's costs. And while Mr. Christie said at the time that the agreement with the federal government would have required the state to pay for any and all cost overruns in the project, the GAO report says the federal government was in fact offering to share those costs. So what was the problem? Well, having nixed the big tunnel project, Governor Christie spent the money for it, <laughs> spent the tunnel money, on the state's transportation trust fund, which just so, it just so happens was, was almost empty at the time, and which it just so happens is funded by a gasoline tax, which it just so happens Chris Christie made a campaign promise not to raise. So, how do these dots connect? Killing a giant state-federal infrastructure project did a couple of things for Chris Christie. It helped make him a famous conservative Republican guy. He's known as the guy who stood up to the feds and killed this expensive tunnel project. He's got his own bridge to nowhere, but he killed it. It also gave him an extra $4 billion to help him keep a campaign promise. An extra $4 billion to funnel into the Transportation Trust Fund and thereby keep his promise not to raise the gas tax, which incidentally was the second lowest in the nation. It also means that Amtrak and New Jersey Transit trains will continue to share two century-old single-track tunnels underneath the Hudson River. That's all there is. And those tunnels are now operating at capacity. Over the next two decades, demand is projected to grow 38%. Where will the projected growth go if the tunnels are already at capacity? Chris Christie made sure it would go nowhere. The Republican scheme to deprive citizens of their legal right to vote has hit a couple roadblocks, thankfully. 
The Justice Department has woken up to these facial violations of the Voting Rights Act by suing the states of South Carolina and most recently Texas. In the Texas case, the Justice Department notes that Hispanic voters are more than twice as likely to lack a driver's license as white voters, and as many as 50% of registered Hispanic voters may be without the necessary IDs to cast a ballot. Thus, the laws discriminatory. In Wisconsin, twice in the last two weeks, judges have ruled that Scott Walker's law requiring voter ID is also unconstitutional and discriminatory. The ruling on Monday, which came with a welcome permanent injunction, couldn't have been stronger. Judge Richard Neese said the voter ID law would jeopardize the rights of struggling souls who, for whatever reason, will lack the financial, physical, mental, or emotional resources to comply. And he was clear about just how undemocratic this Republican push has been. It imperils, he said, the legitimacy of government by the people, for the people, and especially of the people. Such a law, he said, could bring about the demise of government as a democratic institution. That's what's at stake here. Nothing less than our democratic institutions. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Carolina has uh, basically created something known as a purity pledge. And basically anyone who wants to run for office in Lawrence County, South Carolina, uh, will have to sign this purity pledge that makes these uh, Republicans promise that they're Republicans and they're extremely right wing. So I'll give you an example of what the purity pledge says. It says that uh, the uh, politician has to have abstained from sex before marriage. I love that they need, require you to do time travel. Yeah. Like, no, no, not what you're just going to do, a pledge going forward, like I won't raise taxes or anything like that. No, a pledge going backwards to tell me that you didn't have any sex before you got married. By the way. How do you even prove that or yeah. enforce that? And second of all, how many people could it possibly apply to in South Carolina? Or anywhere in the country? Really? There's like a whole bunch of politicians who had no, male politicians who had no sex before marriage, maybe you could couple, find a couple of female politicians. And in this small county, good luck to you, man. Sounds nuts, but now they've got some forward-looking pledges too. Uh, you cannot now, from the moment you sign the pledge, look at pornography. Oh, oh. done, end of this. <laughs> okay, O-V-A-H, this pledge is over. <laughs> Okay. Also, By the way, how many of you really believe that these Republicans are going to sign this pledge and then not look at pornography? How many stories have we done about how red states look at porn more than blue states? Yes. So in South Carolina, a bunch of horny Republicans are going to look at porn. 
But what's amazing is how irrelevant watching pornography is to politics. Who cares? Like, it's amazing that for Republicans in this area, this is the most important thing. Don't worry about the economy. Don't worry about jobs. Let's worry about whether or not these politicians are watching porn. All right, what else I got on the list? You must oppose abortion in any circumstance. Rape, incest, doesn't matter, of course. You must uphold the right to have guns, all kinds of guns. Oh, that's my favorite part. Go <laughs> on, go on. No, 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 I just guess. All kinds of guns. No porn, but every kind of gun. Okay, I got to do it. Just calm down, okay? Jeez. All right. All right. Uh, you must endorse the idea of a balanced state and federal budget. Whatever it takes, even if your primary responsibility is to be sure the county budget is balanced. In other words, uh, you know, if uh, we are going to take state or federal money to balance our county budget, if they don't have their budget balanced, you should refuse it anyway. Nobody is going to follow any of these dumbass rules. You must be faithful to your spouse. Your spouse cannot be a person of the same gender, and you are not allowed to favor any government action that will allow for civil unions of people of the same sex. Okay, standard Republican stuff. We hate gay people. All right. Uh, also, you must have a compassionate and moral approach to teen pregnancy. Oh, that's fascinating. That's is, a little twisty twist. That is a twisty twist. So, do, but understand where they're coming from. If a teen gets pregnant, be compassionate. Encourage them to have that baby. Right. Now, right. after they have the baby, well, good luck to them, okay? Hey, listen, here's a couple of bootstraps. Run along. Yeah. Uh, a commitment to peace through strength in foreign policy and a high regard for United States sovereignty. By the way, who's questioning United States sovereignty? Yeah, like, like who's worried about that? Can you imagine they, they're running for office as a Republican in South Carolina? They're like, I have a limited regard for U.S. sovereignty. <laughs> I'm not that interested. I believe we should give away some of our sovereignty to nearby countries like Canada and Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is that you wouldn't win that race anyway. Okay, goofballs. Now, here comes, you think this story's already over and it's too, already too much fun? it gets more fun. So tell me about this county and some of the interesting museums and birthplaces that it's uh, formed. It's famous for the Ku Klux Klan Museum oh. and it's also uh, served as a headquarters of the American Nazi Party's nominee for president back in 2008. Now look, let's be fair, it doesn't mean they're all Nazis or all KKK in that county, that, of course not, right? But I love the idea of this county known for its KKK museum where the Nazi party's top guy ran for office is talking about morals. Okay, so they figured out the morals, okay? If there's one county in America that's moral, it's this county. And so they're gonna tell you about how not to be moral. So did they kick the Nazi guy out? No, 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 he's welcome. You watch porn, you gotta go. Porn wrong, Nazi and KKK, we're having a conversation. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jess Levin. The U.S. Department of Justice recently struck down a Texas voter ID law saying Texas had failed to demonstrate that the law would not discriminate against and disenfranchise minority voters. Fox & Friends co-host Gretchen Carlson had on right-wing activist Jay Christian Adams to discuss the decision. Let's just take a look at a simple list of what we're required to, to show ID for in general society. To buy cigarettes and alcohol, to purchase an R-rated movie ticket, to even buy Sudafed now, to rent a car, to get a hotel room. And I could go on and on, Mr. Adams, even to get a beach pass in my community, you have to show several forms of ID. 
Adams didn't respond to Carlson's comparison, instead using the opportunity to criticize the left. But back in December, Adams urged conservatives not to use such comparisons, saying, quote, people who love the Constitution shouldn't equate a plane trip with the right to vote free from racial discrimination. Scott Walker's recall election is just seven weeks away, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Here in Wisconsin, it's a referendum not only on whether public sector workers have the right to bargain collectively, it's also a referendum on open government, free speech, public education, tenants' rights, women's rights, badger care, and the environment. It's about whether Wisconsin will honor its progressive history, epitomized by fighting Bob LaFollette, or whether it will sink back into the swamp that produced Joe McCarthy. It's about whether the people, organized as never before at the grassroots level, can overcome the power of big money. If the people win, there'll be one big party in Madison. But if money wins, if the Koch brothers win, if Scott Walker wins, psychiatrists better start ordering antidepressants by the truckload because it would have an enormously deflating effect on the tens of thousands of people who've worked so hard to try to restore a semblance of democracy and decency to the state. Nationally, it'd have a huge impact as well. If Walker loses, other right-wing governors will know that they'll pay a price for overreaching. If Walker wins, however, it's open season on public sector workers, public education, and any last flickering items on the progressive agenda. June 5th is the day. Mark your calendars. Much depends on the outcome. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Traveling is always nice, and I'm from California originally, and the weather is awesome. But I do have to say, one of the sad things about leaving our office back in New York, whenever I have to leave the office, is that I don't like to be away from my wood-burned veto paddle. Uh, the office of Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer last year mailed us this block of wood into which the governor had burned the word veto with a cattle brand. We promptly put it up in our bullpen. <laughs> they mailed it to us uh, after we reported on Governor Schweitzer's particular Montana spin on making a really big deal out of bills that he chooses to veto as governor. Governor Schweitzer, uh, from time to time, will gather a big crowd outside the Montana state capitol, and then he will quite literally burn the word veto right through bills that were sent to his desk from the Republican-led state legislature. Uh, even though he is uh, maybe doing it with the most style of anyone, 
Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer is not the only governor, or even the only Democratic governor, who has had some fun making a big, fiery, symbolic deal out of the process of saying no. Uh, today, for example, in Minnesota, that state's Democratic governor, Mark Dayton, held a press conference for him to symbolically, but not really, but symbolically veto a bill that would make it harder to vote, a bill that was passed by Republicans in the state legislature there. Governor Dayton had to fake veto this bill instead of actually vetoing it because Minnesota Republicans voted to put this measure on the ballot in November. They're putting it on the ballot as a constitutional amendment. In Minnesota, that sort of thing does go through the legislative process, uh, but the governor doesn't have any way to block it. Instead, it goes right up for, for a vote by the people in November. Even though he could not technically veto this legislation, Governor Dayton symbolically vetoed it today, calling the measure unwise and unnecessary. Now, this is not the first time that Governor Dayton has done this sort of thing. Also on the ballot in November in Minnesota is going to be a measure to doubly, triply, extra pinky swear ban gay marriage again in the state. Governor Dayton fake vetoed that bill last May. I mean... To be clear, same-sex marriage is already illegal in Minnesota. It is already banned. But Minnesota Republicans, presumably having solved all of the other more pressing problems in their state, have decided to go through the process of putting an extra redundant ban before the voters this November. Again, it would have no effect on current state law. Same-sex marriage is already banned in Minnesota. Um, but Presumably, I'm guessing, maybe in their estimation, maybe they think it will have the effect of driving up the turnout of very conservative voters in Minnesota uh, who really care and really want to vote on a symbolic strike against the gay this way. But there was an interesting and somewhat unexpected development um, on that little bit of Minnesota uselessness today. When President Obama's re-election campaign decided to weigh in on the issue, the Obama campaign officially came out today in opposition to Minnesota's anti-gay ballot initiative, the one that Governor Dayton fake vetoed. The Obama campaign released a statement that said in part, quote, while the president does not weigh in on every single ballot measure in every state, the record is clear that the president has long opposed divisive and discriminatory efforts to deny rights and benefits to same-sex couples. As Chris Geithner at Metro, we Metro Weekly pointed out today, uh, that language from the Obama campaign is essentially identical to the language the campaign used when it came out against another anti-gay measure that's going to be on the ballot next month in North Carolina. Because this has now happened in a, in a couple of states, which I guess means it's something approaching a pattern from the Obama campaign, uh, we probably should not be surprised if this happens again. But given that the president is on the record as still being personally opposed to gay people having the right to get married, even as his, as his administration has pursued a number of other gay rights measures, including repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and no longer defending the Anti-Gay Defense of Marriage Act, and pursuing equality in benefits for federal employees who are gay, even though they have done all of those things and more, the president's personal stance on the issue of gay marriage rights does make this campaign move, like the one his campaign made today in Minnesota, does make these moves politically notable. Interestingly, though, there was no immediate response to this today from the Minnesota Republican Party. There had been no response from them until we called them for a response. And then they emailed over a statement that read in part, quote, while it's flattering that President Obama thinks so highly of Minnesota to weigh in on our ballot initiatives when he has so much else on his plate, I'm pretty sure we can decide these questions for ourselves. But you know what? That, that itself is sort of worthy of congratulations to the Minnesota Republican Party. 
congratulations. It is good to know that you guys still have phones. You still have your phones up and running. You still have email accounts. That did not seem like a foregone conclusion after Politico.com reported today that the state Republican Party in Minnesota is now carrying over a million dollars in debt at the state level. They are in the red big time. They may be the worst off of all state Republican parties, and a lot of them are bad off. Quoting Politico, the Minnesota GOP is so deep in debt, it has stopped paying the lease on its headquarters. Just seven months from what Republicans like to call the biggest election in our lifetimes, the Minnesota Republican Party is apparently having a little problem with insolvency. Now, we saw this sort of thing uh, back in Nevada, back in 2010, in the last election cycle. After the big John Ensign scandal uh, and various other statewide Republican scandals, the state Republican Party in Nevada, you may rem remember, was in shambles. We traveled to Nevada right before the big Harry Reid-Sharon Engel Senate race in November 2010, and what we found was a state Republican Party that was essentially unable to perform the basic tasks that a party needs to perform in order to win a Senate race. Uh, at that late date, it was namely getting out the vote. Sharon Engel was ahead in the polls heading into Election Day in Nevada, but she ultimately lost that race, in part because the Nevada Republican Party was a hot mess. They could not get it together enough to figure out how to do basic turnout efforts for their own voters. And so on Election Day, they lost. Fast forward two years now, and it's now the Republican Party of Minnesota uh, that is a nationally reportable hot mess. According to the Republican Party of Minnesota, we are not paying our office lease rent payment currently and have not yet negotiated long-term payment schedules and or negotiated settlements relating to most of the vendors on the accounts payable aging. But it's not even just Minnesota. Political also reporting today on a number of so-called orphan state Republican parties that are in serious trouble. These are state parties mostly in, in blue states where Republicans essentially don't compete well. And so therefore they have not developed the ability to compete well. Places like California and Illinois and New York. The National Republican Party reportedly now setting aside millions and millions of dollars to essentially bail those relatively lame state parties out. But the states that Politico documented as having their state parties in trouble um, are not all orphan states. They're not all liberal states. A lot of them are either swing states or something close to swing states. Again, Minnesota, where Republicans can't even pay the rent. One local Republican telling the paper, quote, I don't know how the party is going to be at all capable of doing anything this cycle. Political also noting the trouble right now in the state of Ohio, where, quote, Republicans have been in a state of open warfare for months. The brand new just installed Ohio party chairman noting that he's going to have to rely on county organization to get out the vote as opposed to state organization. There's also more trouble brewing in Nevada, which just saw its state chairman depart after a disastrous Republican presidential caucus in Nevada. One former Nevada Republican Party official telling Politico, quote, underprepared would be generous as a description of his state GOP. Quote, they just don't seem to be prepared at all. Then there's the Republican Party up in New Hampshire, which just saw its own state chairman up and quit amid serious fundraising problems in New Hampshire. And in Iowa, remember Iowa? You will recall that the state chairman in Iowa was forced to resign there after the party botched the Iowa Republican presidential caucus this year. 
under the state party chairman's leadership. Remember, Mitt Romney won on election night. Oh, no, no, then it was a tie. No, actually, turns out Rick Santorum won. No, I saw, I'm sorry, I quit. The new Iowa state party chairman uh, is best known for being a rather vociferous supporter of Ron Paul, uh, one Iowa Republican telling Politico, quote, he's not a guy you have a lot of confidence in. We spoke to a veteran Iowa political observer today who confirmed to us that there's considerable angst in Iowa right now among Republican Party operatives and conservative activists about their new chairman's ability to get the job done in Iowa. State parties are important. I mean, the first thing that we think about are things like getting out the vote and the basic logistics for the presidential race. But it's also everything else on the ticket. It's every other race that's going to be on the ballot in November. Every single member of the House is up for re-election this fall. With redistricting, a lot of those races are way more up in the air than they otherwise would be. So in states that are a total mess at the state party level, what's plan B? If some key state Republican parties literally are not able to pay their rent, so it does not seem like they're going to be able to do anything for the elections this fall, what's plan B? Plan B, as it turns out, is this guy. Uh, the New York Times front-paging a story today about the, how, the, how the $200 million war chest that Karl Rove has already committed to this year's elections is going to start producing anti-Obama campaign ads this month. So if your state Republican Party is bankrupt, like Minnesota, or otherwise in a state of disarray, like Ohio, say, don't worry. Karl Rove and his millions are on the way. Politico reporting today, quote, just as American Crossroads stepped in to help with Senate turnout two years ago to compensate for the underfunded RNC, some new super PACs will help in House and Senate races where the state parties need assistance. Should be noted, though, with, take a critical eye at what happened in 2010. What we saw back in 2010 is that Karl Rove and Karl Rove's endless supply of corporate cash can do a lot, but it cannot do everything. It can't, for example, fill the entire organizational void left behind by a hollowed out, atrophied state Republican Party in chaos. As much money as he may have to throw around, there are certain party functions that take humans local grassroots humans, and that can't actually be replicated by a flown-in campaign full of money from somewhere else. What's the Sharon Angle turnout infrastructure? If the Republican Party isn't all that here, what is she, what is she relying on for, for turning out votes? Carl Rove. What? Uh, American Crossroads oh, uh, announced a few weeks ago that, that they were going to dump a bunch of money into Nevada to help them uh, with, with get out the vote. Uh, and so they, they have poured some money, uh, my understanding is, into the Nevada Republican Party, which essentially is a shell corporation. There's nothing there. Can you really fly in and get out the vote infrastructure? Doesn't it have to be based here? Doesn't it have to be organic? I, I think not only does it have to be organic to be, to be effective, but it can't be done in just a few weeks. John Ralston uh, was right there. Uh, the death of the Republican Party in Nevada seems to have ultimately doomed Sharon Angle's chances at winning a Senate seat that year, despite her standing in the polls heading into that election. Now, th this is not to, to put Republicans down. This does not have, represent anything morally qualitative about Republicans. But it's a really important organizational fact about how different the two parties are. And it doesn't factor, I think, enough into the way that we think about partisan contests. The Republican Party at this moment is not a very strong party. Just organizationally speaking, they don't seem to have it together. But the Republican Party exists alongside a very strong, very rich conservative movement. A very strong, very rich conservative movement that 
can give unlimited money anonymously, even from corporate sources, thanks to the conservative decisions on the Supreme Court that have undone campaign finance law. The imbalance between the Republican Party and the conservative movement is not matched by anything on the Democratic side. And it is the thing that makes Republican politics so fascinating and so different to watch than Democratic politics. And that imbalance between the conservative movement and the Republican Party, the conservative movement having, having its act together so much more than the party, has seemed to be basically true since the end of the George W. Bush presidency. But it has never seemed more true than it does right now, with the state parties just falling apart. Watching partisan politics in 2012 means trying to understand the Republican Party's strategic assets and weaknesses, essentially post-Republican Party as an institution. The House and the Senate in Tennessee has passed the anti-evolution monkey bill. They don't refer to it as monkey bill. To be fair, I think progress refers to it as a monkey bill. But uh, basically, it is legislation that will allow uh, teachers to cover science in any way they want. So if they don't believe in evolution, they can question evolution and discredit evolution when they're teaching their students. If they want to talk about creationism, they're protected. They have immunity. They can talk about whatever they want. So um, this is something that uh, the governor of Tennessee says that he is planning on passing. Great. He will sign the bill. And uh, basically, science will be destroyed in the state of Tennessee. No, no, Anna, you're uh, misstating this. It's educational freedom. Okay, and so I believe in this concept. I think that, uh, for example, history professors should also have the educational freedom to teach history any way they like. So, for example, Anna, um, I believe the British won the American Revolution. Okay, <laughs> and I want the freedom to be able to teach that. Mm -hmm. And if uh, another history uh, teacher believes that, in fact, the French or the Mongolians won the American Revolution, I believe you should have the freedom to teach that as well. Right, they have complete immunity. Yes, and if you try to limit that, Anna, you're just being, you know, uh, a liberal who is impeding upon liberty in America. Okay, you want to teach science as it <laughs> based on facts. Next thing you're going to want to teach math based on facts. Silly liberal. It's amazing. Like you take the Bible, and I get it. People have different interpretations of it, right? But then you take something as fact-based as science. There are no interpretations of it. It's fact. You can't make things up. Yeah. Now, look, uh, of course, their middle ground is well, look, not everything is perfectly settled in science. So we don't know all the laws of the universe. We're trying, you know, we've got our handle on some of them. Uh, and since we don't know everything, and scientists are actually by their nature incredibly conservative, not politically, but mm -hmm. hey, they don't want to say anything is a fact until they're absolutely positively sure that it's a fact. They use that as a weakness. They're like, you see that? They're not sure. They're calling it a theory. And of course, the one I always come back to is the theory of gravity. If you're not sure that's a fact, jump out your nearest building and see how that turns out.
Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. The public school administrators in Tucson really have taken censorship to new heights. First, they banned Mexican-American studies. Then they actually yanked books out of the classroom that were on the Mexican-American studies reading list. Then they fired the head of Mexican-American studies, and now they've slammed the school door on Anna Castillo. Castillo, the author of Lover Boys and So Far From God, is an American Book Award winner. She volunteered to come to Tucson at her own expense to try to bring healing on this issue. But the people who run the Tucson Unified School District said no, they didn't want her in their classrooms. Fortunately, the Latino community in Tucson and others who value free speech and academic freedom have rallied to bring Anna Castillo to town anyway. On May 4th, she's going to meet privately with students and then give a public reading. And on May 5th, she'll be appearing at another public event said Castillo. They can take my books out of the schools and they can keep me out of the schools, but as a law-abiding citizen, they can't keep me out of Tucson. It's this kind of spirit that will conquer the censors across the land. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Yeah, so, and Rachel uh, breaks it down completely, and as Elon is telling me to watch it, I was in the middle of work, and he's telling me to watch it, and I first begin to watch it, and she's telling the story of um, Michigan's Constitution, which, um, you know, as state legislators uh, in that uh, legislation, and different states have different rules in terms of how the legislation immediately takes effect. So it uh, takes effect. I'm sorry. So it can be immediately in some states. It can be after the end of the legislative session. The legislation itself can say when it's going to, you know, turn it come into effect. There's all these different rules in different states. Well, in Michigan, they changed the Constitution back in the 60s and said um, that the uh, when legislation is passed and becomes law, that it takes effect 90 days after the end of the session it was voted in. 
So this means that if they vote in um, this session to uh, repeal equal pay, which we'll get to later, um, it doesn't take effect until the in- 90 days after that session, which right. in Michigan, they're in session so long, you know, it could be a full year, you know, before mm-hmm. the legislation becomes law. Right. She gave the example of uh, if, 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 if a law gets passed in January and the legislation uh, year lasts a year, that means that it would literally in 90 days after the legislation ends, that means that literally something would uh, could would would pass in March. That was a uh, uh, March the next year. Right. That's something that got passed in January. Right. And the reason for this, um, you know, a slow process, which government is designed to be slow for people who are thinking that it's supposed to be fast mm-hmm. and quick. No, but federal government and state governments are designed to be slow, um, so that it gives people who are supporting it, you know, time to bolster the legislation, or um, residents who, who may be affected by it, give them time to comply. Mm-hmm. you know with said law mm-hmm. um, or people that are opposing it gives them time if they want to do a lawsuit or you know or repeal it so many different options it gives time for that to happen the additional provision is that um, the constitution in Michigan also provides the opportunity if legislation needs to be enacted quickly right, if there's an um, emergency, if there's an emergency um, that it can be voted in immediately in the legislation and the law could take effect immediately if it's passed with two thirds majority in the state legislature. Super majority. Super majority. Right? So I'm watching the video and Rachel is, you know, saying it out and she's talking about. And by the way, Eljoy is tweeting me the, I mean, instant messenger the entire guy right. going, I don't see the problem with any of this. Like, and, <laughs> and again, I'm saying I don't see the problem. I'm getting ready to go into my whole rant of why this is why I say state, le- um, state elections is important because the Republicans are now in control of Michigan. And if we were, you know, if we were more vigilant and like making sure that we had Democrats in the office and Elon is like, watch the video. That's why Elon told me to watch it. Because I said, said, oh, this is not good. And then I was like, continue watching it. Right. He kept telling me to continue watching. I was like, this is not a problem. I was like, this is a they're following the rule, you know, and sucks on us that we didn't elect enough Democrats so they wouldn't have two thirds majority. He's like, watch the video. (laughs) So she continues to go on. Turns out they don't have two third majority in the state legislature in Michigan. So they, in order for so these, no, you, you skipped the part. Wait, wait, wait. In order for these laws to um, that uh, the Republicans have so far been passing very restrictive laws in the state legislature and enacting the emer- the emergency rule that they had two thirds majority, but they don't have two third majority nope. um, in Michigan. They would need and ten mi- to twelve uh, Democrats to vote with them every time, mm-hmm. and each time uh, the Democrats have been voting no in a block, saying no, we do not want this. And now, if you remember, if you listen to the show for a while, you remember that. Last year, we covered the fact that this little town basically got told to go f themselves, and all, and that they were turned over basically to the state, yeah. and that all of their electeds and all that stuff didn't matter. Right. It was like they were. T- it was they decided that they uh, that they needed to. Um, what you take call it? over the um, take over the, because of um, the deficit and because uh, the the town's deficit. Mm-hmm. Mind you, the town is predominantly African American. Right. Um, and remember, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I've been talking about this for the last couple of months because they are doing enacting um, using that same and it's an emergency manager law that was passed in the state legislature, right. and they're using the same thing for Detroit. And right. I've been tweeting and talking about this and saying this is people need to pay attention to this. This is right. you know like. 
and we horrible. and we covered this like mm-hmm. like like mid last year, maybe like June yes. of last year. We 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 covered the idea that in Michigan, this little town basically got told like like all of their people got uh, like told no, yep. and they put this guy in charge that no one elected, and, and he, he now has yep. all this power to find out he has allowed to do this because of this Michigan law that uh, that they that the Republicans when they got into power uh, they voted it in and then they passed it on an emergency standpoint because if they didn't pass it on an emergency uh, 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 provision, it would still be debating it, it and the Democrats it, have it already sued. It would have it would have just gone into effect now, like right, right now. They would have had months and uh, like almost a year to fight this particular law exactly. that basically stripped uh, 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 Michigan. Of, Demo- of democratic rule, basically. Mm-hmm. And they passed it. And the best part about it is that in the Bad Out video, they show one of the incidences happening. Mm-hmm. So, like, literally, the guy, uh, uh, they put up a, lo- a bill, uh, uh, they vote, and they say the vote's uh, 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 good, and then uh, someone goes, I moved to pass this vote uh, uh, emergency, uh, uh, um, on emergency status or whatever. And the guy who's leading it goes, alright, uh, all in- all's in favor of this being passed, uh, immediately stand and within three and a half seconds, he goes, motion carried. He didn't count that. He didn't count how many people voted. He not only said, he said um, the emergency, the the two-thirds rule applied. It was like, wait, but he didn't. And you could see Democrats like raising their hand in opposition. It was not three seconds. It was was about three seconds. I tried to count. It was about three three seconds seconds of him. And watching the video, because the thing is, I was watching it, and it it was, I got to the point where I was watching it, I was going, I must be watching spin. Rachel's spinning this, because this can't be this can't be this crazy and when they showed the video of it happening it was like you guys seriously and they refused to allow for the votes to be shown like they the democrats actually asked uh for the votes to be like like who's voting do a roll call count right do a roll call count and and, and they said no so they've been basically passing laws in michigan and lying just and straight, lying just straight out lying they, no, they, and no, they, have TV, the, they have the majority no they no no the they're, but they're lying elon because they're literally saying that we enact the two-thirds rule mm-hmm. and and doing it and they are lying on public television mm-hmm. and saying that they have the two-thirds third majority and then lying by putting it actually in the text of the legislation that they had to there so they're blatantly lying yep. so of course the democrats are now suing you know and they're suing they're in the court suing the republicans do you understand how big that suing they're the suing re- the republicans because they've just been completely running roughshod mm-hmm. through uh, uh through uh what you call it uh, the bills and just pa- just passing stuff just like man, whatever just and like, lying like, but you're like, and their their defense to the um court is that the court doesn't have any jurisdiction yes. over the legislature. It wasn't that they didn't do it, and no, <laughs> not that we didn't do it, but you know, you don't have any power here in terms of the um the legislator was one of the arguments they use, and this is normal procedure for us to not take a roll call vote. So you know, there's nothing really you know for you to be concerned with here. How the thing is that like I want to know why it took the Democrats so long to realize that wait a minute they, they don't have two thirds, but like 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 I'm sure they doing it every day mm. you know i'm sure they this were like been, as soon as the first the, the first one they were like wait no what, what are you how doing are they, how are they not on television every day screaming that the republicans are lying and that the republicans are pushing things through well i like we found out about the, the about the town being uh like basically uh usurped of power but they didn't say and this was passed in a way that just it's, it's virtually impossible democrats was completely against this like matt Alb gave the example of so you have a vote 
all the Democrats say no, all the Republicans say yes, and then when they ask for the emergency uh, of ability to make this law right now, the Democrats go, yeah, you know what, I mean, I really hated this bill, but let's make it law right now. Let's do this. <laughs> Let me ask you this in terms of the recourse. So the, 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 the Democrats are suing, right? So there's one that... I, I think there's another step that can be done because so far, especially for, and they've passed 566 bills. 566 laws! And, and no, 566 five, and then 500 and... 546 emergency, emergency And 546 actions. of them, they use the two-third rule. 96% of these things have been passed. Just like, like a so, ball. So there are a couple of things that I want to bring out. So first of all, and I, I need I need a constitutional person because I believe cities and towns exist at the pleasure of states anyway. So I think this is why the state, the state has the sort of the legal um, basis for sending in an emergency manager is based upon that. So cities and towns and things like that, they exist at the pleasure of states. Because states are in the Constitution, you know, like mm-hmm. the existing of states are in the Constitution and stuff like that, not individual cities and towns and things like that. And I remember this from because we always have this fight back and forth in terms of New York City. We actually pay more to the federal government and to the um, to the state of New York in terms of taxes and other things than we actually get back in resources. And um, one of the things, you know, th- one of the arguments and stuff that's always used is that cities, towns, things like that, they exist at the pleasure of states. Right. They're created at the, uh, the the pleasure of states. The other thing is that so far, the towns that they have uh, um, two of the towns that they are or cities that they are using this emergency um, uh, management law with. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done it now with I think it's six cities or towns in Michigan. Two of them, a large populace, are African-American. Mm-hmm. So I. I'm assuming from a legal standpoint that those two cities either combined or individually can send a request to the Justice Department on, uh, I guess it would be diminishing their voting rights or... Oh, their votes don't matter anymore. Right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I think there's a, a, a case there. And I just want, I need the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. <laughs> like I need somebody, you know, because I feel like their rights are be their voting rights are being um, violated, or at least their civil rights being violated by not having the elected representatives uh, of their areas that they actually elected manage their cities and towns. I feel like it's it was it was bad enough. Like when when we found out about the basically the, the, the town that's being told to go after yourself, you can't you can't no. No, you can't uh, be able to uh, govern yourself once we decide uh, that you can't. That was one thing, but the, the, but then I mean that was and that was a pretty bad thing. That was a pretty horrendously bad thing. Understand that. But on top of it, you're telling me that people are just they're pushing through laws they, they, that that shouldn't have even been enacted yet. You're telling me that you basically are just lying. You are just running yeah. roughshod, and they and they also uh, uh, apparently are, uh, are are trying to affect the presidential race. Like they're doing. Well, no, they already have. They they're, they're, the the new law that they're trying to do is they're trying to change voter registration. Yeah. Laws, but they actually already changed um, uh, the primary the primary election piece that they changed and passed legislation to spend the money on the changes uh, for the prime presidential primary um, election. And now they're trying to change voter registration standards using the two third um, two thirds rule as well. So all of this, and you know, I'm I'm you know happy that Rachel sort of brought atten- you know brought attention to this, mm-hmm. and I. I need to send an email. <laughs> I need to 
send emails to people. I need lawyers. I need people to actually be doing <laughs> some stuff on this because this is like, and there's evidence because they're lying on public tele. They don't even have the common decency to have somebody pull the plug on the public access television when they're actually lying <laughs> by not doing, not taking the vote. Right now, actually, maybe they did take a vote. I'm going to take a vote in the chat room right now, Eldra. I have the chat room pulled up on the screen. I'm going to take a vote. Everyone who's in favor of the show being called Coons Gone Wild. What? Motion carried. They voted yes. No. Um, so, <laughs> what? No, I counted. He counted. I counted. I counted in the chat room, and they said the show should be called Coons Gone Wild, Eldroy. That's what. We got, we got listen, to, I, the Republicans, I just saw them. I saw how they do. That's how they do. We, we, we're going to cover this story more because one, I need to, I need to find more information and verify like my thing in terms of cities and towns existing at the behest of states. I need to, I need, I need that actual language on that. And then I'm going to get somebody from NAACP Legal Defense Fund People on the show. Freaking out. And we're going to talk about this the best part in about detail. It, the best part about it is that Aaron and Eldre both had the response of, oh my, oh my God. No, oh that my wasn't God. my response. What was no, actually, my response? El- El- Eldroy was cursing. Aaron just kept going mind blown. Uh, <laughs> blown. We were all sitting there just going, "This isn't." I didn't know. This say, isn't real. I right? didn't know. Say anything actually had legs like that. <laughs> to be very honest with you, I didn't know. I always make the jokes. Like, remember we would joke about me running for president. You said yeah. you have to be thirty five, and I was like, "Nah, screw it. Just be. Just do it." <laughs> screw it. I didn't know things like that had legs. Honestly. So the best part about it is that the chat room, uh, uh, for, the, the chat room overwhelmingly all typed in all sorts of expletives and no. And I, I, guess what? Guess what? Super majority. It's it's passed. Oh, the show God, is called. No. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Listen, I'm following the Republican ways of rules, uh, Eljoy. This is how they roll. This is what they do. Blatantly lying. But it's don't you don't even have the common decency of pulling the plug on the public access television that records you lying. But you know what? At this point, why would they do it? Because I think that last video was like a, a recent video. Why would they cut? Why would they cut it? Because they've been doing this for about a year and a change Negro, now. People in New York, the Republicans in New York, when they decide they don't want no no discussion on bills and stuff like that, you know what they do? They pull a plug on the public access television, mm-hmm. and people be screaming. People scream from the floor, and you'll see on you know uh, Twitter like some of the legislators is like no justice, no peace. You know mm-hmm. they're talking about like they don't have any more discussion on bills and stuff like that, and they decide you know what we're not doing this anymore. We're a majority. Pull a plug on public access television. Wow. Nobody talks. Wow. Well, apparently, uh, but the point is that they've been doing this for a year now and getting away with it. Why would they feel like there's a problem yeah. now? Once you once you've been getting away with murder, like you're just like F it. What what what, 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 what you gonna do? What you gonna do? It's something unattainable that you can't live without. from the great state of Michigan tonight where we have been reporting on a drive to overturn one of the most radical new laws in the country. In its current form, the one passed by Republicans last year, Michigan's emergency manager law 
lets the state take over cities and school districts. The state overrules the choices made by local elections and instead hands authority over to a single unelected overseer who gets unilateral control. An emergency manager can sell off the town's property, can cancel the contracts, they can move to dissolve the town. They get to say how much power the local elected officials retain. If an emergency manager wants, he or she can take that power, can take all the power from local elected officials, and never mind who the voters pick to represent them. Democracy does not apply at the local level. But democracy, it turns out, is hard to give up. Opponents of the law organized a petition drive to put the law on the ballot for a citizen's repeal in Michigan. In February, they delivered their petitions to the state, saying that they turned in more than enough signatures to get the referendum on the November ballot. Last week, another group challenged those petitions. Their top objection was that the font on the petitions themselves is a hair too small. And so no matter how many Michiganders sign those petitions to get rid of the emergency manager thing, they say the Board of State canvassers must throw all the petitions out based on font size. The group that is so outraged by the font size is the project of a Republican consulting firm. The font size challengers have the same address and the same phone number as the Republican firm. The firm's senior counsel is the spokesman for the your font size is too small effort. One of the three partners in that firm, hey look at that, one of the three partners in the firm also serves on the board of state canvassers. That's the board who gets to make the decision on this. He gets to make the decision about the font size challenge being brought by the group that lives inside his office. He is both the pitcher throwing the baseball and the umpire saying whether or not that pitch was a ball or a strike. And he has not said whether he will step aside or whether he will stay in the game and play both roles. Michigan state law says it's his choice to make. But wait, there's more. Turns out it's not just that one guy and that one guy's problem. Oh, Michigan, you are amazing. Uh, it turns out there is another member of that same board who has exactly the same kind of problem. Another one of the four people on this board works as the political coordinator for a Michigan union. A Michigan union that has a petition drive going for a referendum on union rights. Before collecting signatures, her union asked the Board of State canvassers, including their own political coordinator who sits on that board, to approve their petition. And when they did that in March, the union's political coordinator voted for her own union's petition. She joined the other three board members in approving the petition. She stayed in the game as pitcher and umpire. Just as, so far, the Republican guy has too on the emergency manager thing. And she says it's okay. The union rep, the Democrat in this case, she says it's okay because the four member board is supposed to be made of partisan. She says, quote, what makes the system fair is that it takes three votes on the board of canvassers to do anything. So why not step aside and let the other three people who don't have a conflict of interest vote on this? Because everybody on the board could have a conflict of interest that somehow makes all of the conflicts okay. This is seriously how Michigan is handling its democracy? In order to get something voted on, on the left or the right. You have to run this gauntlet where the deciders, the gatekeepers, all have huge direct conflicts of interest, but we've decided that nobody cares about that? My favorite part about covering what's going on in Michigan right now is all the scolding we get from the Michigan press about us reporting on things that are shocking and backward and anti-democratic in Michigan, but that they say we should not report on nationally because in Michigan, they don't care about it. <laughs> we keep getting all of this pushback from Michigan press. Ah, back off, in Michigan, we don't care about this stuff. We don't see it as all that bad. Why don't you see it as all that bad? 
This week, a former emergency manager in Michigan spoke out about the way the state of Michigan is running things these days. Michael Stampfler is his name. He was the second emergency manager assigned to the city of Pontiac. Governor Rick Snyder replaced him in September. In part, the Snyder administration tells us because as emergency manager, Mr. Stampfler recommended giving the city of Pontiac to the county, essentially letting go of Pontiac, having it just become a place in Oakland County. After having been an emergency manager, after having been willing to essentially dissolve the city he was put in charge of, Michael Stampfler, this guy, is now blowing the whistle on the law that empowered him to do all that. He now says, quote, I do not believe emergency managers can be successful. They abrogate the civic structure of the community for a period of years, then return it virtually dismantled for the community to attempt to somehow make a go of it. A guy who's been there, who has been put in unilateral control of an American city, says putting someone in unilateral control of an American city doesn't exactly prepare that city for good governance and for standing on its own two feet in the future. Yeah, right, right? Mr. Sampler is planning on giving his whistleblower speech on Michigan's radical emergency manager law next week at a Rotary Club in Wyandotte, which is just south of Detroit. As much as it apparently infuriates the press in Michigan for us to be the ones saying it, it seems like this whistleblower guy might be important for a state trying to figure out how its democracy went all cockeyed. Provided, of course, that you care if your democracy in your state has gone all cockeyed. My name is Lauren, and I'm calling from Iowa City, Iowa. Um, I just wanted to give you a quick call because I uh, just listened to, well, this week, I listened to um, the episode from April 10th about um, LGBTQ, LGBTQ rights, and there was an argument at the end about whose argument was, whose struggle was more important or whose struggle was, there was a sort of a comparing between the struggle for queer rights and um, the struggle for atheists, and I heard it, it annoyed me. I almost turned it off, but I thought I would call instead. There's a concept in radical thought that I think is useful here, and it's the concept of intersectionality. Um, it's, it has the idea in it that uh, we can't separate out the oppression that we feel um, from one type of minority status. For example, if I'm a black woman, then I can't separate out the oppression that I feel from being a woman from the oppression that I feel from being black. If I'm you know, working class and queer, I can't separate out the oppression that I feel in my experience from being working class versus the oppression that I feel from being queer. And um, this came from this sort of, this is a solution to a set of arguments that people were having um, about what is most important to fight first, patriarchy or capitalism. And, you know, you say, well, which one do we want to privilege? But people came to the conclusion that this is kind of a, a pointless question. Why? Because these are the same fight. These are the same struggle, and you, you can't separate out one from another. The sort of oppression that you feel in one case is the same. It's not the same, but it's inseparable in your experience and the oppression that you feel that you feel in the other case. Um, and so I just wanted to say, like, let's not get bogged down with arguments about whose struggle is more real or vital or important. I mean, I remember in your response to the um, atheist that I called and um, left, uh, left a message that it, it was offensive, to you um, to compare, for him to compare his struggle 
to um, the, the struggle for queer rights. And I, I just wanted to say, like, I think that that kind of argument is a little bit pointless. Um, why? Because we struggle against oppression. These are the same struggles. They're the same fights. And it's pointless for us to get involved in these arguments about what's more important or what's more real. So we have to fight all of these oppressions all the time. And that's what gives us solidarity. Anyway, I just want to say thanks for all your hard work. I always enjoy your show. And I'll keep listening in. Have a great evening. Bye. Hi, Best of the Left. This is Daniel Platt from New York. Your show, uh, the Bin Laden group hug, was uh, very moving and kind of inspired me to call it my own kind of story. I'm 23 as well. But I wanted to say why I was never afraid of Bin Laden. It kind of maybe go back to a kind of challenging point, but it's, it's our media and our government that has made us afraid of terrorism. Uh, on September 11th, you know, I was in middle school. And uh, I was shocked and uh, not scared, maybe a little worried. But uh, the next day, which is incidentally December 12th, my birthday, things weren't really that different. Security in my uh, schools didn't really change because of threats, Columbine-like threats. City didn't change, I'm from Albany originally. And, uh, you know, and my parents didn't really teach me to be afraid, and they weren't afraid because they had other things to be afraid of when they were growing up. They were baby boomers. And you know, my father was a big environmentalist in his day, still I suppose. But uh, my second point is that you, you made a point about us young people being more conscious and informed. Well, part of that, Jay, is you. You have helped me. You invest for the left in turning me on to all the other shows that you present. It is a wonderful package that I recommend any chance I get because it's been such a great help in me finding my own position in life. And it's actually you and that's the left that in part has inspired me to action. And that is why I'm informed and that is why I occupy. Thank you. Hey, Jay. I just finished listening to uh, episode 601, and um, I just had a couple things to say. The thing about the young people having opinions that you didn't quite expect totally hit me. I guess I'm like almost 50. I'm 47 years old. I'm technically a, a boomer, but I feel like a Gen Xer. And I had the same thing as I was listening to these people who were 20, 21, 19 years old and saying how they felt about the about someone in Laden and uh, about the effects of the war and I was just talking to my son who's 16 about those same things and I was completely caught off guard by the uh, articulation the depth of thought and, um, and and what they think about their future and it doesn't look very good for them and I feel partly responsible that I didn't do enough to prepare them for the future, to make a better world for them, to, to tell them that, that they're, they're really necessary and they're needed. And uh, I just haven't done that enough, and I really feel like I've let them down. And I just want to say to all young people out there that are thinking about these issues that, that we need you, that we care about you, and, uh, and we love you. And I want to, and I really, really want the best 
for all for all young people out there, and I want uh, I want them to feel part of what's going on and what's going to happen. And I just feel like they they are not prepared. They are not being prepared for their future, and and their future is uncertain and it's scary. And uh, and I want them to to be uh, better informed, and I want them to be uh, um, trained, and I want them to be educated, and uh, I want them to to listen to your podcast and to gather as much information and form opinions and, and start making making a difference in, in the world around them because it's theirs. It's going to be theirs pretty soon and it's not going to be mine anymore. And I just want to have something to leave with. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So today, I really just want to give a a huge update on the Our Blue Media fundraiser that I launched a couple of episodes back. Um, Of course, it was co-announced on the David, David Pakman Show and the Young Turks, and the reaction, honestly, has been amazing. I mean, we... It's not like we didn't think that we were working on a good idea. We're really excited about it. We think it's a really good idea. We thought people would really like it, but the the reaction has really surpassed our expectations. We have literally not received a single comment uh, that I have seen, at least, from anyone saying this sounds like a bad idea or a waste of time or anything like that. Every single message we've re- received has been incredibly positive, and, uh, and and people seem to be really excited about this being in the works and, and for when it launches. As of this moment, we've received donations from just over 70 people, and it, it, that's taken about six days to happen. 70 donations, uh, yeah, 70 different donations in six days, totaling just about $7,000, meaning an average of $100 a person, which is ridiculous. I mean, you you just don't see numbers like that for projects that that people don't feel incredibly passionate about. And, you know, that 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 includes a couple of people who have donated 1,000, a couple of people who don- donated 500, um it, you know, a handful of people who have don- donated 250, and lots of people who have donated 100. And, and lots more have donated, you know, 20 or, or between 20 and 100. Um, but really, we did not expect <laughs> we did not expect for it to be received just this well. So uh, so huge thanks to everyone who is donating. Of course, if you're interested in uh, getting involved, OurBlueMedia.com will take you right to the fundraising page. And of course, all the details of the campaign are there. The basic idea is that we're, we're really trying to build a piece of new media infrastructure that just doesn't exist right now. PayPal has, it, it did its job for 10 or 15 years and that was fine, but it's really time for a new system built of, by, and for the progressive new media to step forward, really make the system much easier, much more palatable to use, and, and, and really create a system that allows people to work together. You know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've been doing interviews to to promote this. I did a couple today. I hope to do a couple more this week. And and you know, what keeps coming up is is the idea that in the media like this, we don't really see each other as uh, as competitors. You know, there's not really a reason. You know, thanks to time shifting and being able to listen to whatever show whenever you want, you know, we don't really compete with each other for like time slots. And so we, you know, the myself and, and the hosts, like we consider each other colleagues and we are happy to help promote each other's work. 
But when it comes to fundraising, we really don't have the ability to work together, which is the most fundamental of all progressive ideas. And so this this program is really going to allow a whole new world. Like I, I have a sense of what it's going to be able to do, but I imagine that I don't even know all of the benefits that are going to come from it because I just think it's going to unlock a new world, you know, of cooperation between media outlets that, that will allow them to work together in ways that they, they never could before to fundraise in ways they never could before. And th this is like the quintessential rising tide, lifting all boats sort of scenario. So thanks again to, uh, for everyone's excitement. Thanks for, uh, to everyone who has donated, please consider donating. Of course, you know, we've, we've raised $7,000. Our goal is 15,000. We have until the end of the month to do it. And uh, I mean, obviously it's possible to do it, but, uh, but please keep those donations coming in if you're interested. And so that's going to be it for today. I, I will leave it there and just thank everyone who's supporting that campaign and everyone who supports this show, of course, in particular, uh, you can become a member, make a one-time donation through the website. Of course, we're still working with the old system and I really hope that there aren't too many people th out there thinking, Hey, that's great. I'll, uh, I'll become a member in a couple of months. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, funding may drop off. Uh, so, but that's a, it's a risk I'm willing to run. But if you want to become a member or make a one-time donation, of course, that can still be done through PayPal on, on my website. Of course, everyone support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social media. All that can also be done on the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter and get details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.